Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And the hits just keep on coming, I tell you. I have been so blessed to have tremendous people be a part of the Intentional Encourager podcast. Today's guest is no different. He is Mike Garrison, and he is the creator of the values mindset. And we're going we're gonna to talk more about that. And I may have just... I may have just initially butchered that introduction, which is not unlike me to do, but I did get his name right. That's I did, right. I did get that right. And uh, Mike Garrison joins me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. You can find him on LinkedIn at Mike Garrison, G-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. We're going to get into his story. But Mike, it is so good to have you on the Intentional Encourager podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing, as I like to say, better than I deserve, and I'll take more of it. Well, yeah, I like that because, you know, I would say you've ripped that off from Dave Ramsey, but I think Dave Ramsey ripped that off from you, so. No, he's older than I am. I get, like, Dave can have that. But yeah. I, I, was, I, was, I always like that because I, I, you know, my values tell me that I'm getting far more, far more than I actually deserve. Yeah. And, and I... I, I'm the kind of arrogant person that needs to remind myself of my actual state of being as frequently as possible. Yeah. And by the way, it's values-based mindset. So yes. that's the name of Mike's company, values-based mind. Listen, a little bit of, of searching and research before you start these conversations goes a long way. So. Hey man, podcasting but, for wimps. Well, that, yeah, that's true. That's true. I, you know, but it's it's not for, you know, it, it's for intelligent people, unlike myself, who just, you know, gotten a mic and a computer and just like, hey, I'll just throw a podcast out there. But no, in all seriousness, you and I connected several months ago because in my real job, I cover an area that you live in, the Roanoke, Virginia area. I love that area because the people are great. It, it's it's a it's a really nice area of the country there's a lot of things to do without a huge heavy population down there that that gets in your way you're not far from lynchburg virginia you're not far from the virginia tennessee border not far from the north carolina border so you really uh roanoke's about an hour from greensboro north carolina so you're in a really good area of the country so i've been asking everybody on these podcasts as we record in the midst of covid 19 how are you do, dealing with the pandemic personally? And then what have you seen in the community that's gotten your attention, how people around you have dealt with COVID-19? Uh, I am I'm very, very fortunate, very blessed. Um, my business has done better during COVID. I'm a, I'm a business coach and I'm about to launch a private online community called the Values-Based Mindset Experience in about two or three weeks. And Basically, what I help people do is help them go from potential to performance. And um, about a year and a half ago, I got really worried about the future and started talking to all my clients about 
business models if everything went online. Like, hey, mm -hmm. we've got to be more virtual. And um, I'm very thankful that my clients who are far more, like you talk about being a, a podcast host, like I'm a coach because I'm not as good as my clients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that, like I'm a coach. Coaches aren't meant to win the games. We're meant to help the athletes that have the capability of winning the games. So I love I've, what you said there. I, I got to park on that for just, I love what you said there. It's the reason that a lot of times great man, great performers don't make great managers and vice versa. And I've said this, and I don't know if you're a baseball fan. I've been a lifelong baseball fan. And, and I've said about this is that there are three guys, three or four guys in the Baseball Hall of Fame that played Major League Baseball. Tony La Russa, Joe Torre, Sparky Anderson, and Tommy Lasorda. They ranged in their big league careers from one year to a few games of big league experience to many years in Torrey's case. And what I said was, they're not in the Hall of Fame because of their playing career. Exactly. They're in the Hall of Fame because of what they did as a manager. And so, you know, the Hall of Fame separates that. And I love what you said there. Coaches are not as good as their clients, so they, they try to help their clients get better. Why do you think most coaches don't take that mindset? Because your company is called Values-Based Mindset. So why isn't that mindset more pervasive in the world of coaching? Wow. Um, I think um, – Did I throw you a curveball there? No, no. <laughs> so I've often said I'm not a rent-a-friend. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not somebody who is going to get paid for saying really nice things to my clients all the time. I am compassionate, but my clients hire me for one thing, results. And I charge a lot of money for it. Yep. And, and I'm keenly aware of what percentage of their discretionary budget, whether it's a corporation or an individual, they're hiring me for. Um, I, I think that it comes down to ego, right? I have been in sales and I was continually told throughout my entire sales career, and I coach a lot of independent financial advisors, guys and girls that own their own firms. And I was an advisor. And as an advisor, I was told, man, you could be amazing. You've got tremendous potential. And I was ne never able to reach it. And I think that's the thing. It's like some people are meant to be on the field in particular sports. And some people are not. Like I was good, but I was never going to be great, Brian. Never going to be great. But you know what I'm great at? I'm great at helping other people be even greater. I'm not great at making them great because you've got it or you don't. If you've ever, if you've ever watched athletes or you've ever watched salespeople sell, you can tell talent. Yep. And so I think it's ego, quite frankly, when you get down to it. I think most coaches, especially inexperienced coaches, I've been coaching a long time. Um, I think most coaches are hung up on trying to compete with their clients. And like, that's not how you make money. Like, I don't make money when I'm smarter than my clients. In fact, I'm in danger of losing money. I make money when my clients do one of two very special things, right? Make more income or preserve income with less time. Yeah, that's right. a great point, Mike, because here's the thing. I, and I'll tell you a story from years ago. My wife and I were buying a car and my wife put the deal together. She knew what she wanted. 
She's like, look, I just want to make sure you're okay with this. So we went to the car dealer and I looked at the sales guy and he's, of course, he's sitting across the table and he's going, okay, everything's good to go, locked and loaded. And I said, sell me the car. He kind of looked at me, Mike. And I said, I am 50% of this process. You sold my wife. We're here. I'm here. Sell me the car. Because at the time I was a sales manager and I like, I want to see what kind of chops this guy has. Because I'm getting ready to sign for a large purchase. I want to see what kind of chops this guy has. And so in about five or 10 minutes, he went through everything. I said, okay, hand me, hand me a pen. Because I wanted to see, Mike, to your point, and I love what you said there. I wanted to see what he was made of. And I wanted to see, too, okay, from a sales guy's thought process, is there something in the process that I can pick up on that my wife missed? Because two, two sets of eyes are better than one. So let, me yeah. so let me follow up with that. I love what you said there. Some people are not meant to be on the field. How do you know that you're better off being a coach than a client? Do you have that V8 moment that makes that, makes that a reality? Um, me specifically or generically? I think generically because I think great coaches can see things in other coaches. Yes. You know, and, and we talk again about sports. It, it's coaches mentoring young guys that they feel like that might have it in air quotes. I would, I would say it's like, what, what set of glasses did God give you? Right. And, and so bear with me. Um, Cause I've never been asked that question before. It is a fabulous question. I, I would argue that most people shouldn't be coaches. Right. Because coaching is a really volatile combination of ruthlessness and compassion it's just yeah. but it's external and so um i think that it's glad like if you're looking for coaches and i'm looking for coaches like i'm going to be hiring coaches hopefully 10 to 20 over the next five years right and looking to pay them a real wage 85 to a hundred thousand dollars but I'm looking for very specific things and I'm looking for people that gain more energy because I'm a, I'm a behavioral assessment kind of guy. I'm looking for people that gain more energy when they watch other people trying to improve themselves versus, and there's nothing like I'm no better because I'm a coach. It's just, I tried being a superstar. It didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. didn't have what it took. Like I was, I've always been so much more interested in how other people perform better and up until very recently depressed, frankly, at how unable I was to replicate my client's success. Yeah. And Mike, here's the thing. Okay. I look at coaches. You, you take, you take guys like, and, and I'm going to throw this out for, for those people that, that may or may not know. You take a guy like Bobby Knight. I yes. don't know that I would want my son playing for Bobby Knight, but many people had their sons play for Bobby Knight and had a tremendous experience. Bobby Knight could rip you up one side and down the other, but he could hug you. There might be guys that succeed better under a guy like John Calipari at the University of Kentucky 
who is a phenomenal people person, a guy that was that was at my area uh, for a very short time, but has had an unbelievable career. Billy Donovan just became the coach of the Chicago Bulls. Rick Pitino, his protege, his mentor, a lot like that. And then you have guys like Coach K who are that blend, or Phil Jackson, who's more of the, hey, I'm going to let my guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to design the system. I'm going to coach these guys well. I'm going to get the best possible people I can. They may not be the most talented, but they're going to execute it the best. You look at coaches, and everybody has a different style. So I guess to, to, to follow up on that, and I love what you said there because I'm fascinated by the science of coaching. What makes coaches great at one place and not so great at another place? Know your lane. Like, so for example, the coaches, when I think of great coaches, I, I never think of coaches in team sports. Really? You know, I like, I like, except for Joe Gibbs, who's the greatest coach that ever lived because my, my former Washington Redskins and now the Washington football team, I was a huge Joe Gibbs fan. Um, but it's like a great guys, guy to emulate, you know, for a coach, oh, a wonderful yeah. guy to emulate. And been through a lot too, right? Mm -hmm. He's been tested, been tested and he came out passing a test. But like, I think of uh, just off the cuff, I think of powerlifting coaches that I really admire. Um, I think of kettlebell enthusiast, Pavel Tussolini. He's the guy that really brought kettlebell training. I think of um, Sweet Burns, who, in my opinion, might be the greatest powerlifting coach of all time. My opinion. But, and, and these are – because that's the kind of coach I am. Like, I do work with some teams, Brian, but most of my work is with the, the head guy or gal that runs the business. And I, I – I tend to gravitate toward coaching individual performers where we get very specific and very granular about how we measure performance, which is why I love powerlifting, right? Powerlifting is, this, is, a, is a unique sport where you have massive gains in the beginning and then like you scratch for a pound, right? You, you, and it's, it's so analytical. It, and it's so emotional. I, for me, that's my lane. And so I, I think back to it is like, there's two types of coaches. There's coaches that work with individuals and then there's coaches that work with teams. And I think there's, you'll see some overlap. I work with some teams, but like for me, one-on-one, -on -one, I, I spent an hour talking to one of my high performing clients. He's got a team. He's a far better manager than I ever was and ever will be. And yet by me, selling out completely for his success and that success is not just at work it's all around yeah. by completely selling out for his success by just focusing on him i actually have a massive impact on a lot of other people but then well, there's there's people that can lead a large group that can manage yeah. a large group and have lots of individual impact well and mike you, you were talking about individual coaches and things like that and I was reminded, as you said that, the greatest golfer that's ever lived, in my opinion, is, is Jack Nicklaus. 18 major championships and things like that. Jack Nicklaus doesn't coach golf. Because... He does design golf courses, though. He does, yeah. He, he's a, he's a world-renowned golf course designer. But the guys that are coaching most of the guys that play on the PGA Tour 
are guys like Butch Harmon and Hank Haney that were never great players, to your point earlier, about some people aren't meant to be on the field. Jack Nicholas could say, well, well, you know, do this, do that. And his coaching may not fit a guy who's not a long bomber. And there's not many of those guys on tour because you can't make it today without hitting the ball a long way. Bryson DeChambeau, baby. Yeah, Bryson DeChambeau. And Bubba Watson, who, who you know, who's got a place – here in West Virginia, you know, Tiger Woods, you know, it made it as, as, you know, he was the longest hitter on tour for a long time. My point is about Jack Nicholas and guys like that is you can be a great, an all-time great and never be meant to coach other people because what you had to do to get great doesn't fit with what the majority of the people do. And maybe you're in that quarter of a half percent that are just so relentlessly like a Michael Jordan just so relentlessly focused on the pursuit of perfection that you will just kill everybody else in your way if they didn't do it the way you did I I think there's a like that's another pair of glasses right you know it's it's almost impossible to take someone that is and those people are so rare, Brian, the people that can internally performance assess, right? They're they're so rare. Um, And their careers are generally shorter, right? Well, and they're internally processing, Mike, they're processing very fast. They're not taking it quarter to quarter. They are literally doing it play to play. I, I think, in, I'm, in not sure. some, yeah. I'm not sure I'm there, but like, I think that's an aspect of it. But I, I think the, the secret to coaching is this. You have to decide how you're going to, your, your performance is measured. And so like a real coach, whether it's a group or an individual, has to derive their personal satisfaction from how they're able to affect other people's performance. But that high performer, right, we need the high performers too. Like if it was all coaches, nothing would happen. But yeah. we need those high performers who are so gifted that like when I give them just the smallest thing, they can achieve amazing results. But, you know, so you have to have both. You, you, you know, thank God, thank God that high performers want to be better. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a job. Well, and, and this is, and I didn't mean to stay here so long. It's fascinating to me to talk about coaches and say, okay, this guy has something that makes him greater than this guy does. Or this guy has something, you know, it, it's, it's why is Phil, and, and again, I, I'm going back to team sports for just a minute because those are the high profile guys. Absolutely. Those are the, you know, you look at the greatest team sport coaches of all time and you think okay Vince Lombardi and they get paid more and they get paid more yeah Vince Lombardi Phil Jackson um I I was watching Miracle the movie Miracle uh not so long ago ESPN had it when when sports were there Herb Brooks was was a professional he was a college coach coaching college guys and then went into the professional ranks, and, and everybody was saying, oh, okay, you're the guy that took the USA team, so you must be able to work miracles everywhere. 
and he wasn't able to work miracles. He just happened to take a group of guys in a particular moment and elevate their performance to something supernatural, legendary. And sometimes coaches exist for that moment, right? I mean, Absolutely. sometimes they're just moments of time. Absolutely. Like, I've had, I've had coaching relationships that were somewhat, somewhat awkward, but very short, like three months, four months. And you have to remember that your job is to help. Like, if you own a client, you're not a coach. You're a cult leader or something like that. You know, and so for me, I'm very fortunate. I've had co uh, clients be with me for years now. But I think one of the reasons that works is because my insecurity about my value drives me, drives me to risk the relationship. Like if you want to be a coach long term with an athlete in business, you've got to be willing to say things that could get you fired if you're not the right coach anymore. Like one of my favorite testimonials is from a guy that's been off and on with me for over 10 years, right? We've coached for a year. He's gone and done some stuff and then come back. And he said, Mike always tells me what I need to hear, even if I don't want to hear it. And that's, that is my style. I, I, I believe very much in pushing my clients to connect with their values. Like, cause I want to know if I was coaching you, Brian, I want to know at what point are you going to swing back? Right. I want to know where, where you're like, nope, this is truth. I do not, I do, you know, like, I will not go past the Gandalf moment. You shall not pass. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, because from there we can build, but I got to get there and it, you get there differently with all kinds of different clients you know, but ultimately, my coaching system is about what is true, what will you commit to doing 100%. And my favorite, my favorite response to newer clients is, why are you lying to me? Mm -hmm. I go, yeah. why? You said that this mattered to you, but your behavior does not say that it is. You're lying to me. And, you know, they either get offended and fire me, or they get offended and perhaps say some very direct descriptions of me you know well but, as much as a, as much as somebody trusts a coach there has to be that that trust going back i at the time of recording this i was watching the the green bay packers last night I was watching them play the new orleans saints in the nfl football game aaron Rodgers has way more experience than his head coach his head coach is calling the plays into his headset Aaron Rodgers knows at any time if he doesn't like that play, he can he can audible out of it. Yep. There is that kind of trust if he goes, I know you may have called a, a, a running play, but I saw this. And so, therefore, because I saw this, I did this. And the, and the coach go, okay. That that's totally fine. There there has to doesn't there have to be some of that give and take pushback. If you're coaching me, Mike, and you said, "Hey, Brian, I see this," I might go, "Mike, I don't really see it that way." It doesn't there have to be some of that trust in each other to push back a little bit. It happens every day. Like you know, I mean, fundamental. So you ready? I'm going to give any aspiring coaches. I am now going to for the world. 
I'm going to now tell you the number one secret to being a highly compensated coach. You ready? The number one thing you have to be able to do as a coach is figure out what clients are coachable. The number one reason coaches don't make money is they're trying to be rent of friends, right? And they're trying to get like the Sally Field, you like me, you really, really yeah. like me. Right. Like the only affirmation I want, because I've been doing business a long time, the only affirmation I want is my clients' lives measurably better. A, that means they can afford to pay me. B, that means they want to pay me. C, that means that we can go someplace else. We can go someplace else. And that's the deal. People are always like, what's your number one talent, your skill? And I say, I'm a, I'm a great talent scout. Because when I commit to work with these people and we're talking 20, 12 to $20,000 a year, it's really bad if it doesn't work. It's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with social media now. It's really bad. And like, believe it or not, I go out of my way to have a longer sales cycle than I think most coaches would be comfortable with. Well, it's, it's, about, it, it's about getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. And it's just like in sales. You don't have to sell every customer that you get. And, and I, I said this in a, in a sales training one time. I was sitting in a room, Mike, with 100% commission sales people. I was helping do a training. I was a regional sales manager for a, a manufacturing company. And I said, guys, I'm going to be real honest with you. I'm going to put a turd in the punch bowl here. You need to, you need to learn how to fire customers. And they all looked at me like, yeah, you just dropped a turd in the punch bowl. I said, here's what I mean. If you spend more money offering service and babysitting and chasing money and doing other things, then you make in what you provide and, and the level of service you provide and how well you perform, if, if, if it's inverse, if you're giving more than you're getting, it should be equal value. It, there should be an equal trade for value in, in a selling relationship. If you're giving more than you're getting, fire that customer. Because there are going to be some people that won't pay their bills. There are going to be some people that, that will nickel and dime you for, for price. There will be some people that will demand more of you and give less. I said, you have to be willing to fire them. You have to know where your, your limit is. Because if you let people take advantage of you, guess what? They will. Totally. It's, um, I, think, I think the greatest problem in sales is people don't understand that sales is everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. nothing um, happens until somebody sells something. You know, my, one of my one of my favorite speeches is sales is just a noun, right? It just it's a description of the process of business. And I always laugh because I say, like I've always found it very interesting that that we have marketing departments, right? And we have things called sales and marketing degrees, and nothing against the marketing people, right? But the internet has has kind of confused everyone. Sales is why companies exist. They exist to deliver a product or service or experience, and they measure it by sales. Like they don't measure their success at the end of the year by how much marketing they do. Yep. They measure it by how much sales is done. And people have taken sales and we've made it where you ask for business. And that's not sales, that's transactions. 
Sales is everything. Product conception, product sourcing, product creation, product marketing. Like, so marketing is a component of sales. Sales is not a component of marketing. Now, for anybody that disagrees that that's cool, like it's America or wherever Absolutely, you want. Absolutely, yeah. Do whatever you want. You're an idiot. That's not how it works. <laughs> truth, truth is truth. Just because you don't yeah. like truth doesn't mean it's not truth. Yeah. I always say to people, like the standard is a standard. Just because you can't meet the standard doesn't mean the standard moves. But I want to get back to something. I don't believe in equal value in sales. So I believe in receiving what you wanted to get. So like for, say, my average client pays me $1,000 a month. Well, a lot of them make significantly more than what they spend. Yep. The only thing that matters is for my unit of time that I expend, do I feel like that is appropriate? For their unit of time and money, do they feel like that return is adequate? And I, I think sometimes we get into this trap where, and I'm not saying that's what you're saying, Brian. I'm just picking up yeah. on it. No, no, no. This is good stuff. This is good, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the secret to really doing this, like I always tell people, like it doesn't matter at all what you're selling. It doesn't, you, like you don't matter. All that really matters is, is that an ideal client or not? And like when people come to you and say, hey, Brian, I really want to buy X from you. That's great. That's a transaction. Like you, you skip the entire sales first part yeah. of the sales process. When, when stuff, I call it chicken little marketing. When, when a sale falls into my lap, you know, I'm generally, unless it's a terrible idea, going to take that sale. Mm -hmm. But when it comes time for who am I going to go after? Who am I going to invest capital and time and emotion? I'm only going after ideal clients. I'm well, only let me park there just a minute because sure. we've, we've gotten a lot of salespeople over the years and I've seen it because when I was, when I was young in sales, I did it. If a sale fell into my lap, I was like, I was doing a happy dance. Like, Oh my gosh, I didn't, this is great. Until I realized that somebody might've dropped an IED in my lap. You know, somebody might've dropped or my, the, how I learned it, Mike was, I, I had a competitor who was more seasoned than me said, oh, you should go in after this, this client. You can help them better than I can. I took the bait. But what ended up happening was, it, and by the way, this competitor ended up working for me. Ah. I was her boss. I ended up being her boss. But what happened was I took the bait for a while. I did the grunt work for a while that one restaurant location turned into about six at some point where I had all the business. And so, and I want to park here on something for just a minute. We, we use the term value all the time and say, well, you have to create value and nobody can ever define it. You can't create value. Yeah. You, because it's undefinable. My yeah. value to me is different than value to you, Mike. Yeah. Value is there or it is not. Yeah. Right. And so I like, it's, it's tough because my company's values-based mindset. Right. And so I find it really interesting how many people, and I'm going to come right back to it. But when I talk to people about having a values-based mindset, it's a hard conversation because most people rent their mindset from the culture. They rent their mindset from everyone yeah. else. 
and they've never done the work. It's kind of like the difference between an athlete that's got talent in, in like grade school, but doesn't work out. All of a sudden they get to college, they're not fast anymore. They have more talent, but because they didn't prepare, they, they go by the wayside. But back to what you were saying, like you can't create value. Like what you have to do as a salesperson, and, and quite frankly, as a business person, what you have to do is understand what's valuable for your client. That's the yeah. only thing that matters because either you've got something that's valuable to them or you don't. And when we try and like create value or share value, a lot of times we're just pounding square peg in a round hole. And it's just so unproductive, whether it's Keenan talking about it or, you know, Mike Weinberg, all these, you know, uh, Mark Hunter, Larry Levine selling from the heart. Like you, you will go out of business, whether you're an individual salesperson or a business owner, if you cannot figure out what your ideal client wants and that ideal client, the way, half the way you pick it is, do you have the capability of delivering what they want? Yeah. So it's so not true. knowing, it's yeah. not knowing what they want. Do you have like in your, in your various positions and in mine, I, I started off selling copiers. There were many times where I would get a lead or a referral into an opportunity or a cold call and like the person was ready to buy from me, but I did not have what they needed. And you have to fight the temptation in those moments, right? Like it's never good. So, but back to your one story, cause I love that. I train my clients. I, we have a specific training we do in our, in our coaching program where we try and add all of the non-ideal clients that we come across to our competitors. Yeah. Like, cause if I can, especially for financial advisors, I want my financial advisors giving all of the accounts that don't work. They come across load up, even, even if they never end up doing business with your competitor, what they, what most people don't understand is when you have meetings with people that aren't good clients, you're losing good clients. Yep. I want my clients only talking to ideal clients. And if we can bury the calendar of a competitor with bad clients, it's a beautiful thing. Well, and Mike, that's the thing that we have to keep in mind is there's not going to be business that's good for us as a company. There, there is business that's out there that, that for some reason that customer believes that they will only, they will, they will, I don't want to say this. There are customers that believe that companies should over deliver and they will undervalue what that, that company does. I know, and I always knew as a salesperson, what I did better than my competition, how I was going to help my customers be more successful. I knew that. I knew the value that I, that I brought. And I would say, hey, look, I'm going to share with you some ideas that you're not hearing right now because I know what my competitors are saying. I'm going to share some ideas with you that are off the board because, you know, Mike, and, and again, it's knowing what you do well and it's knowing how you deliver it and it's knowing that if you want what – there are restaurants out there that, that aren't serving value meals, right? They're, they're not they're – not, couponing people, getting them in the door. They go, hey, you know what? Our steaks are 30 bucks. We make the best steak in town. 
and we're packed out every night. We don't need coupons. We, sure. we just, we do things that well that people are going to come to us. We just do it that well. And so, Hey, I, we could park here forever, but man, your story is really what I wanted to, to get into. Sure. Um, and I love this conversation and I think there's a ton of, you can gain a ton out of this conversation as, as folks listen to it. And I would encourage you after when, when this releases, go back and listen to it again. Mike has dropped some beautiful nuggets here for everybody, but your story is fascinating. In the time we have left, take me from point A as far back as you want to go to, to how you got to this point, because you've done some things that in your life that has shaped how you got your value-based mindset and where you are today. So um, I would say that the, the values-based mindset system came about about four years ago, the genesis of it, um, when my dad was sick with terminal cancer. And my dad was, uh, oh, we were really close. And after he died, a couple things he said to me resonated and I, I had a I had a really terrible moment Brian where I asked myself if everything I've been doing for the past 20 years of my career if it was a worth anything and b was it was it really helping people and those are some dark times like when you really look at what you're doing um like was I a flim flam artist was I was I just a motivational speaker or was I actually doing stuff so so that's where I want to start that's the pivotal point now I'm going to go back it all started with a guy named Art Radke. Art Radke was the brand new franchise owner for BNI for the state of Virginia. And he's from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And Art was involved with me becoming a Christian. It is a, it's a funny story I'll tell some other time maybe. But um, he ran these referral groups for, for Business Network International. I was running and involved in a couple other like renegade groups. I didn't realize at the time they were former BNI groups. <laughs> and when, how, when, when Art bought the franchise, he thought there were a lot more BNI groups. And when, when he got there, he realized there weren't. They were all ex-BNI groups. And, but Art was this amazing teacher, like a rabbi. He was just his teacher. And I got invited again and again to go visit a BNI group. And I finally went and visited one in, in an Old Town Alexandria at the California Pizza Kitchen. And I walked in because I had said, hey, if I come, will you never invite me again? And I came because yeah. I, you know, I was hot. It's kind of like man. people do with church. It's like, if I show up on Easter Sunday, totally. never invite me again. Totally. I'm so arrogant. Um, I'm, I'm just less arrogant. I'm still massively arrogant, just a little bit less. It's funny how age works. But my biggest competitor walked in the same time I did. She literally came down one side of the street. I came the other. And I was in there. I was like, I don't care what I have to do. She can't have this. And like the meeting was okay, but Art spoke about referrals in a way I've, I'd never heard anybody talk about it before. And meaning that he combined real sales truth with networking referrals. I applied, I sweated out, like there was a brutal interview process because they had two hard charging copier salespeople. They accepted me. And I remember after my first meeting, I went up to Art and I said, man, I wanna be like you. I want, like, I wanna do what you do. And we started this process. I ended up buying a BNI franchise for Southwest Virginia. Um, I'd never been to Roanoke. I didn't even know it existed before I bought the franchise because it was like I was a DC guy, right? 
I was like, yeah, that's like, who knows what happens down there? My wife and I moved down to Roanoke and we built um, award-winning B&I franchise from nothing without ever cold calling or advertising, 100% by referral. And in the beginning, Brian, it was by how I bought from people. Like I was able to grow the business by how I bought because I didn't have any clients. So I had to be a client that other people, when I was purchasing from them, would want to refer me. I challenge your audience to think about that and really ask yourself. Now, would I recommend that for anybody else? Absolutely not. <laughs> Don't do it like I did. It can be done, but it's horrible, right? Well, Mike, a lot of salespeople, and I've said this and I'll continue to say it, a lot of salespeople have forgotten how to buy. Yes. It's, it's, it's a one track, I sell this way. Okay, but how do you buy? Like, well, what are, what are your dominant buying motives? How do you, how do you, how do you do a trade? And I love, I love that you grew your business by the way you bought from other people. That's, that's brilliant. Well, it's, well, it was also desperation because I was a very proud man. So, <laughs> but like when you get down to it, one of the biggest things I get asked to speak and like referrals are important, but values are what makes referrals happens, right? Values are everything. But I, when I interact with people, I say, look, Anybody here want to get lots of business by referral and everybody in the audience or in the boardroom or the individual salesperson, Panera, like, absolutely. I said, great. Like, how, how well do you like it, right? When, when, you're, when you get a referral to a new client and they beat you up on price, how, how, how well do you like that? And I've never had anybody say, oh, I love it, right? Never. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, I hate it. I'm like, cool. I said, tell you what, pull out your checkbook or nowadays is like, pull up your bank account, right? Yeah. Let's go through everything you've purchased in the last 30 days and let's identify which purchases were driven by price and which weren't. And I don't say that in a mean way, but if you want to have the emotional expectation that people are going to buy from you based on, you ready for our favorite word, Brian? Based on value, yep. you darn well better do it every time yourself. And this is where we get into it. Like people don't understand in sales that mindset is what separates good from great. The ability to control and prepare on a lot of fundamental foundational small things is what drives big results. Like say, say you ran a team of 20 salespeople and you wanted to bring me in. Mm -hmm. The first thing I'm going to try and find is what you're great at and identify what you're great at. I'm going to validate it because data will validate or not. And then I'm going to say, hey, like, would it make sense if you're already like a high jumper and, you know, you're, you're already the world record holder? Like, are we just going to keep trying to jump higher or do we need to train in other ways, look for other ways to improve performance? And so like with a great sales team, one of the, this is the easiest way. You ready? The average sales team has got a lot of people that are metabolically unhealthy. Mm -hmm. If you could have every one of your sales team eating so that they felt and thought better, and it, it's scientifically proven that you can do that, you would have a bigger improvement on quota performance than if you drove them harder through another sales methodology. I almost never train on sales. I coach on sales, but like, it, there's not a lot of 
dissonance on what sales is. It's like, why aren't you able to perform? That's the real issue. And well, often, a lot of a lot of salespeople, I found this, and, and, and Mike, I've said this, and yeah. I, again, I don't mean to veer, but but I've said this. Sales is really simple. It's great people connecting great product with a great process to an ultimately great experience. But it starts with helping people get, as Zig Ziglar said, helping people get what they want. And a lot of times we have flipped that script, Mike, to say, well, I'm going to sell this customer because my commission check is going to be better for it, or I've got to make my number. Guess what? Your customer doesn't care about your number. You know what they, they care about? Will. Yeah, they never will. You know what your customer cares about? Did they get yeah. what they wanted out of the experience? Yeah. Did we did Te we did we over deliver? Techniques is smokescreen. Your it sales, really is. It, it's a smokescreen because here's the deal: like people hire me not to figure out how they can be better, but to address why they aren't. You hire a coach because you know you can do more and you need an outside person who thinks differently, right? Who's yeah. not trying to be a better copier rep or a better medical supply person. You need somebody who's able to forget themselves, zone into you and then say, all right, let's have the conversation It's not pleasant. Why aren't you performing better? Those conversations always suck. They do. Right? Well, and, and let me- But I'm compelled to have them. Let me pivot back here for just a minute. You mentioned the loss of your dad, and I've, I've walked that road. I, I still have a picture above my desk of my dad. In fact, my, my new book, People Buy From People, will, will be telling stories about my dad and the influence of my dad. Your dad went through a, a lengthy illness before he passed away. What was one of the greatest lessons during that illness that your dad taught you that you still impart after his death? So it's a, it's interesting. It, it bears to another story. So I'm the parent of a severely disabled child, multi-disabled. Uh, my son was born, weighed one pound, seven ounces, autism, epilepsy. And my dad always struggled to connect with my son, right? Autism is really hard. And it, my dad's old school, and so because your son was born prematurely, it caused the autism. We don't know about the autism, but it, it caused a whole bunch of other stuff. So, and he was just, we had a, a little technical glitch there, Mike. He was one pound, seven ounces at birth. One pound, seven ounces, massive brain injury. And it's hard. It's never easy. My son will hopefully never live home. Like I'm the one parent that kind of wants to outlive their child. Right. If you yes. just think about that, like, because if we don't, all kinds of bad things happen. Yeah. Um, so we grieve forwards, but my dad always struggled with that. But what happened is, is at my lowest point, and my dad had just beat cancer for the first time. At my lowest point, I was uh, crying. I don't cry really well. It's bad um, or often. Um, and I called up my dad and I told him, I don't know what to do. I said, I, I don't know what to do. And he said, I don't know what to do either. And I was like, well, I, he said, are you going to give up? And I, I said, no, with emphasis. And he said, are you going to give up? I go, no. He goes, that's right. If there's one thing I know about you, you're not a quitter. Like, he goes, you're the best man I've ever known. And my dad didn't say things like that before. He said, you're the best and strongest man I've ever known. 
and he wasn't a Christian. If he was, he'd have said Jesus, but like he said that to me, he said, you're not a quitter. He goes, I have no idea how to help you with your son. And it's the most terrible thing I've ever known in my life. But I do know that you will take care of him and that you can do it because you're the strongest man I've ever met. And that's because of a lot of stuff that happened when I was a kid, divorce of him and my mom and everything. And before my dad left, I was really fat. I weighed 260 pounds. I'm going to show you this picture. It's about three or four months before he died. My dad said, Mike, and he poked me in my huge belly. I weigh 219 now. Um, he said, this, that's my dad and I at my graduation from United States Army Airborne School in 1987. He goes, this is who you are. Yeah. That's not who you are. And the greatest gift my dad gave to me right before he died was the truth about my identity. And he wasn't even a believer like I am. Yeah. And about two months after he died, I looked in the mirror and I said, who is that? That's not who you are. And that's where the values-based mindset system came because my dad connected me with this reality that I'd forgotten my identity. I'm like, how do you reconnect to your identity? That's where the values-based mindset system came from. And I'll share something with you, Mike, because, you know, I'm big on, I'm the, I'm the only son of, of my siblings. So I have two younger sisters. And so a lot of people, when they see me today, still talk about my dad because I, I have a favorable resemblance to my dad. I carry myself very similarly. And I had a guy that has known me and my family for 35 plus years. He looked at me one time and he said, I need to tell you something. It's okay. He said, you have done everything correctly to carry on your dad's legacy, but wow. now it's time for you to be your own man. And, and that was a couple of years ago. And I just saw this guy in the last few days that told me that. And I said, thank you, because it's important when your dad has a big part of your life and is an influence on your life. I felt like from the minute my dad died, it was, it was, it was almost my duty to, to carry that on. When in actuality, my dad would have said, uh, no, you're, you're your own guy. You're your own man. This is, this is who you were supposed Every to be. Every father wants their children to be better. Yeah. They never want them to be like them. Like, go, be more. You're, yeah, that's what I tell, my, I tell my 20-year-old that all the time. I say, look, you go do you, and your mom and I will be right here cheering you on, and you go be better than than what what I ever thought about being. And so I got to ask you this, um, because I get jealous. My dad died suddenly. I mean, the last conversation I had with my dad was literally the last one. I mean, he died to sleep. When you went through that time with your dad, what did you see about your dad that made you go, man, I've never seen this side of my dad before? So I've never seen that kind of fear. It, the worst day of my life was when my son was born. That's the worst day of my life. But the worst year of my life was watching my dad die from cancer without hope because he wasn't a Christian and I was. 
and we couldn't talk. Um, and my dad died terrified. And he, that's something I'd never seen of my father. I'd seen disappointment. I had seen frustration. I'd seen great courage. And I had seen, I'd seen, quite frankly, I'd seen a love for me as a son that pointed me to Jesus Christ, even though my dad didn't believe in him. Like mm -hmm. how my dad loved me is why I'm a Christian. And, and it was, it was a, it was the most beautiful thing ever in the most horrible way to see this process unfold and to see my dad fight for life on his own terms, in his own way. And only at the end, only at the end, and I was holding his hand when he died. My sister and I were holding his hand when he died, when he took his last breath. And um, I can't imagine somebody callous enough to not be changed by that, to have the man that you love more than anything else as far as a father. I love my wife more, but I held his hand while he died, you know, and, um, and I know that he died afraid up until the last day. And it, it was a, uh, it was terrible. And I, I didn't want to, to not tell the truth to your audience, but I learned more about life and I learned more about people and things like that and more about myself watching that happen. And, and for me, I had to respect my father's right to go as much as he could on his own terms. I had to respect that my father did not share my belief system, even though he shared the values. Yeah. And I had, I had to deal with that. And it, it was bad. It was really bad for a couple months because I'd have all these friends coming up to me, Brian. Oh yeah. I know your dad wasn't a Christian, but you, you just never know. And like, I mean, all these platitudes and I'm like, actually, you know what? I know, I know I'll yeah. never see him again. I, I had to deal with that. I had to deal with his fear. I had to deal with my sorrow. And, and the most, the best thing I'd say is this, there is something so exquisite about respecting your father and who he stands for while at the same time not having hope. And yet the love was better and bigger. Like I, 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 I have my dad's picture by my desk all the time because he's the single greatest influence on my life. Yeah. Totally. So I don't my, my, was... my dad too. My, my dad too. I don't know if that's what you're looking for. I don't know. No, if, it was beautiful. No, 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 no. It, listen, there are no right or wrong answers. There's no, what I'm looking for. Well, it's the encourager. It's the encourager podcast. I don't know. If yeah. That's the intentional encourage. No, it is. Mike, here's the thing, and I'll ask you one last question. Here, here's the thing. It is about connecting the guest to the audience through a story of similarly walking a road that other people have walked or are walking. And it's connecting your story to them where they go, I've been there or I'm going through that. Right. See, there's, there's only two outcomes. We've either been there or we're walking through it currently. Right. And so 
that's that no they're they're I, that's why this that's why this podcast exists in the form that exists because i want to tell the story that needs to be told to help somebody else and so with that thought in mind my last question to you is this what is your biggest piece of intentional encouragement to to those today it can be about a situation like that or it can just be in general. What's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement, Mike? So bear with me. Hey man, the floor is yours. So go, so, you know, do what you want to do. So embrace fear is truth, right? Because at the root of all lack of performance is fear, right? We are cursed or blessed with the realization in those quiet moments that we are temporary. Right? And that awareness of our own mortality is what stops most people from approaching the limits of their potential. They, they unconsciously pull back from what they could accomplish. And so real coaching, a real coach, whether you're doing it for yourself internally or whether you're working with a, somebody else, a real coach will always take you to the fear. They will always take you to the fear and they will insist on you owning it because the second you own what you're afraid of, that's when you start to get to make real choices. And the choice is not good or bad. Like you can, you can approach your fear, which is what's stopping you and you can retreat and you're not a bad person and you are, you are not a waste because God created you. You are uniquely special and valuable just on that. But for those of you that want to go to the next level and still be able to look yourself in the mirror, you have to look into the fear. Why and how is fear, not greed or ego, but why is fear keeping you from doing what you know you can do? Man, that is so good. Because here's the thing, man, it is that Sometimes the fear is greater than the facts. Oh, absolutely. Like, most, most of the time. Most of the time, the fear is greater than the facts because, you know, Especially again. Especially when it's unconscious. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, the, the fact is that it's not as bad as, as what we think it is. I got to write that one on the whiteboard. Go ahead, man. That, you can have that one. You can have that one. And for those listening on uh, on those listening audio version, Mike is writing that down what I just said, and and we'll have the video up on YouTube as well as for that too. Go to LinkedIn, find Mike Garrison G A R R I S O N, or go to value values based mindset V A L U E S B A S E D. M-I-N-D-S-E-T, valuesbasedmindset.com. Connect with Mike there. Connect with him on LinkedIn. Mike Garrison, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate you being with us on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Brian, it was an honor. My thanks, as always, to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, 
and any place can be an intention.